I'm a bitch in the streets and a cunt in the sheets, plus a slut behind your back. You won't like any part of it, so you'll label me as crazy, but I'll take that over clingy any day. Welcome to The New Exchange, a podcast series that explores how everyone has a story to tell. My name is Ken Grandpierre, and today's episode is about why it's important to find humor in the darkest of times. Over the years, I've grown fascinated by comedians, especially as their role in society has evolved beyond performing on stage. With social media, so many comedians are able to connect with us when life is rough. And in doing so, they remind us how important it is to laugh beyond our painful moments. My comedian friend, Brittany Brave, is someone who's helped to make the pandemic more bearable for so many people. Brittany is the rare kind of comedian who's able to have no filter while still considering the feelings of others. Whenever I hear her jokes, I'm reminded that there's a space in our lives for silliness and how jokes can lead us to the truth. One of the major things I admire about Brittany is her work ethic. She's never waited for an opportunity. She's always created her own. From producing live shows like Rock Candy at Rockwood and the Friday special at the Tiny Cupboard, Brittany Brave simply knows how to get shit done. Together we chat about how we can take dark experiences and use them as a means of growth, as well as how performing is essential for comedians to make sense of their own lives and so much more. After our chat, be sure to check out Brittany's web series the disastrous dating life of Diane Damone, and to follow her on both Twitter and Instagram, at Brittany Brave, for updates on her upcoming comedy special, which will be coming out later this year. This is The New Exchange with Brittany Brave. Enjoy. God, I feel very lucky that I have one of the most in-demand comedians in the whole world on the podcast today. How are you? <laughs> How are you doing? I, uh, um, I'm better after that intro. Uh, hello. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. 2020 was uh, such a shut show, huh? That's one way to, to put it. Yeah, I feel like if I, if I were to tell my kids someday about 2020, they would think that it was a really bad bedtime story. <laughs> <laughs> They'd have nightmares, truly. Yeah, five minutes in, they'll be like, what's the purpose of this story? And then you could be like, well, that's the horror. There was no purpose. That's that's why. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They'd be like, mommy, why are you starting with the big bad thing? Isn't that supposed to come at the end? <laughs> and I'd be like, no, honey, it's actually going to get worse. So by the end of this story, you won't feel anything. Well, tell me about this. You went back to Florida to for a bit to be with your family. Uh, how has that been? been good it's been good i understand um most people go to florida not under great circumstances i'm one of the very few people <laughs> i'm one of the very few people who like goes to florida for solid like <laughs> and for um a reset but i did i grew up in miami and um in march when miss rona was hitting pretty hard I it got really apocalyptic in New York and I I thought I'd go home to Miami for like two weeks and then voila I was home for five months after a couple visits back to New York for work and various projects I'm now basically living in Florida at least through the winter by no means a permanent thing but um it is warmer down here 
And for lack of a better, for, for better or for worse, it's more YOLO. I'll give you that. So, <laughs> yeah, wow. I'm here now. So the Miami native has somehow inadvertently become a snowbird. Look at that. I am. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say I run many retirement homes. <laughs> For people listening who don't know, snowbird is a term for people. Oh, it's not only for New Yorkers. It's just people in the North, right? It is. Anybody that's trying to escape the winter and goes to a warmer climate. And yeah, yeah there is a special bond between New York, New Jersey, and Florida. I, there's a lot of people who have like family in both and who fly back. And it's really cheap and easy in Florida because it's not sustainable to live here. I still don't know how my parents <laughs> live here year round. It's a place you should only live in seasonally. Like, you shouldn't stay <laughs> here too long. You know what I mean? <laughs> so one of the big things I want to talk to you about is, um, like, one of the things I'm fascinated about comedy, with being both a fan of it and someone who just, like, observes comedians, is that it's interesting to me how stand-up comedy is something that we're all aware of and feels very omnipresent in our lives. But there definitely was, you know a starting point. And I wonder what that was like for you. Like, talk to me about your experience when stand-up comedy became a fixture for you, when you, like, first took notice of it. I, I think I have a different and, and interesting approach to stand-up than a lot of other comics do. Um, that sounds self-righteous, but, but, you know, I guess we'll let your listeners be the judge if it's an interesting story or not. But <laughs> I, I, so I was always a huge comedy fan, and I did improv and acting and sketch comedy. And stand-up was very foreign to me for many, many years, believe it or not. It's actually something I will admittedly say I didn't consume a lot of it. I didn't, I loved comedy, like Mad TV, SNL, I Love Lucy, uh, all, you know, all these other, you know, the Three Stooges I even loved a ton as well. And I loved improv. I was really, really into improv, but stand-up felt very foreign and it was something I never, ever considered myself doing. It just felt completely different than improv and sketch. And in a lot of ways it is. And then, yeah, about two, almost three years ago, I started writing and talking about my life, kind of accidentally creating material or creating things that the only medium that it would make sense was stand up. Like a lot of comics, I think, you know, I did, I did find it on the tail end of a really bad abusive relationship and my PR career, which is how we met, you know, my music PR career falling apart and a bunch of other, you know, areas in my life that I was really not happy with. But I, I did fall into it. I won't lie. I was producing things and speaking in such a way and it was funny and it was dark and it was uh, edgy to some extent because of what I was going through. And the only medium that made sense was stand up. So before I knew it, I was sucked in. And now my life is a shithole. And I, and I get on stage every night for blind validation from strangers who just care about the two drink minimum. And who's that girl who's little who let her on stage? Is she 14? I like that one joke about her pussy. Like, you know, it's all, it's a, this is a black hole of an art form, but I love it, baby. So here we are. <laughs> tell me this, though. Tell, tell me this. When you, because that's fascinating to me that essentially you kind of were doing without realizing it. Do you feel like there were people in your life that kind of illuminated you to the fact that stand-up is something that would have made the most sense to you? Or do you feel it was like almost fully internal while you were in the thralls of that? I'd say it was 50-50. I think that you approach stand-up if you, I think you approach any art form if you figure out that you have something to say that you think would bring solace and commonality camaraderie if you will and community and all of these different things to other people I think you approach any art form that way music or comedy or whatever you start to realize that 
your experiences can be mirrored to other people and that you might be saying something that somebody else needs to hear and maybe you can say it in a certain way that it changes their experience. So I do think something internally was bubbling and I do think it was becoming increasingly more important because of the relationship I was in in my life for me to like take power over who I was and what I was saying. That's cheesy as fuck. This is not, <laughs> I, I get it. Like this is stuff you buy on a throw pillow and I understand that, but it's, it's very, very true. And then, yeah, the other, I think the other part of it was I was making sense of my life and some fucked up shit was happening and I was making sense of it to friends and not trying to be funny, but alas, I was, and I was making them laugh. It was eliciting laughter from them, you know, find friends who laugh at your pain. That's the best advice I can give anybody. And before, yeah, before I knew it, 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 you know, always being a performer, Maybe I would have found another outlet had I not already always been a performer or been somebody who was on stage or spent the better part of their life on stage. But then it just made sense. Like, yeah, why haven't I tried? You said something there that I love so much. And I feel like I definitely don't want to like uh, alienate anyone who's listening, but it sounded so New York to me what you said about finding friends who could laugh at your pain, because I've noticed throughout <laughs> my adult life when I've traveled and like, I'm like making fun of someone or a friend is making fun of me that people in other places could sometimes like kind of be confused and almost like take a step back. But there's something here in New York about like ripping into each other where there's a love that comes with it. Like you really almost feel a closeness to someone by just kind of like ripping them a bit. You absolutely do. You you absolutely. And and conversely, and I don't think this is a good thing. I think positivity, optimism, and joy. People are like, what the fuck is wrong with you if you, <laughs> if you experience that like even a comedy scene a little bit if you get up on stage and you have a bit about being single but god forbid your comedic premise is that you're enjoying it people are like well fuck you like you got too, you know you got too much mojo like what are you like well adjusted and doing stand-up get out of here you know <laughs> But yeah, and I do think because it's such a tough city and it, it is a city that a lot of elements are constantly trying to break you down all the time. So there is a, an inherent bond between two New Yorkers. I was like, ah, man, fucking Wednesday. Am I right? Fucking mm. Wednesday. Yeah. And you just, you know, you bond. Well, exploring that a bit more because you're right. Like just being here in New York, it can be a grind no matter what you're doing. And it makes me wonder because something with stand up, which is like something that I find to be incredible, but I've known enough stand ups in my life where I know almost on every level, it's really difficult, even in a city where there's so many different options and different places to perform. So I'm curious, like, when you look back, especially within those first few months where you were doing stand up, what do you think it was that made you stick with it? Like, what do you think it was that made you want to go like, yeah, I'm doing this regardless of how hard it is? I think nobody from the second you start stand up, nobody is lying to you when they say how hard it's going to be. and. I worked in the music business. I saw musicians struggle and write and rewrite and fall and succeed and every ounce of that in between. But I, if I were to toot my own, my art forms form very quickly, stand-up is a little, it's brutal. It is. So I think you start off with everybody, everybody in the world, when you tell them you're going to do stand-up, I would do it now. If somebody said, I'm going to start stand-up, I would be like, well, fasten your seatbelt because the here we fucking go. Like, you know, and I, I wouldn't lie to anybody about what it is that it requires internally and externally in order to have any kind of success or traction with it. So I think it comes as no surprise that you're going to, it's going to be really fucking hard and then lonely and taxing and, you know, all of those things. So you stick with it. If you have an understanding of that, then the, the things that start to get thrown at you, you're like, well, this is part of it, right? 
Like I, I'm going to bomb and it's going to be hard to get stage time and I'm going to go through highs and lows. And then I think there's this other side of also number two, this is, this is a three point lecture. <laughs> if you're good at it, here's a positive side to it. You know, the worst thing that can happen to you when you start stand up is you're good at it. The worst thing that can happen to you best is your first few times on stage, you get laughed. You're because a lot of people aren't natural at it. Like a lot of people, it's pretty bad. I, I've, I've sat through thousands of open mics and you're like, what? You know, and they have every right to get on stage and try it and every right to, to work something out. But, you know, there is something we all, everyone who's still doing it now or having any kind of success with it, their first few times work like they were good. You know, you saw you had a knack for it that kept you going. And then I think lastly, the thing that keeps me in it now is making material that I really believe in, that I really want to share and constantly believing in my ability to bring joy to people so that when it gets hard and when I get rejected or when socially it gets really stressful or there's a lot of anxiety or whatever kind of bullshit it throws at me, all of that shit falls to the wayside. And that's like kind of what keeps you in it is you're like the art form, but I love the art form so much but I know what I'm saying someone needs to hear. And I know one day it's worthy of being on a big platform. I like what it is I'm saying. No, that makes a lot of sense to me, especially when you think about just how hard, I mean, take the context of 2020 out of it in this equation, but just existing and also take the equation, New York out of the equation, just existing as an adult is hard. And it's like, it's one of those things that I feel, if I think about one of the things that, uh, we don't tell kids, which is really strange, is how the element of being an adult, of maintaining a life and building a life, it's actually a lonely thing. Even if you have friends and partners, because you deal with so many things that are so commonplace and normal. And I feel like, well, obviously we're here in America, but I feel like people everywhere else can relate too, is that, you know, if you have a hard day at work and it's like excruciatingly hard, there's an element where that's just to be expected and you almost feel like you can't share with people. But if you go to a comedy show and you hear someone talk about their hard day at work, there's a connection you're making almost silently where you're like, oh, that person can relate to what I've been through and they don't even know me. So that what you're talking about there, it's, I think it's really important. Yeah, I, I agree. And you, I mean, you just said something that I think is, is so pivotal and in that like adulthood is lonely and it's, it's an inherently lonely process. And that, especially as you get older, you find that you are your only resource to fall back on. And while that's empowering and glorified and great and just the reality of it, it's also it's lonely, it's harrowing, it's dark in a lot of ways. And I think comedy, I've always looked at it as an audience is like, whenever they laugh, it's like a resounding me too. It's like a resounding, like, yeah, that's happened to me. Yes, I've been there. I felt embarrassed. I felt pain. I felt heartbreak, whatever the tone of joke is in a sense. I love the fact that comedy can make people feel less like their island out yeah. on their own a little bit. And just kind of, you know, maybe your bad day maybe isn't so bad if you can get on stage and hear some, you know, Jester talk about how fucked up their day was. And that <laughs> makes you feel a little bit better. You know, you're not alone. And I, I hope people leave comedy shows and carry that with them too. Yeah, I think there's some definite truth in that. And you know, I've seen you live a few times now, and it's interesting that I think so many people assume comedians are essentially the same people they are off stage versus on stage. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's it's from knowing you that I've seen that that's not always the case. Like who you are off stage isn't exactly who you are on stage and vice versa. And in a lot of ways, I feel like you, I mean, you've said it a lot here already, but you use the stage to say things you wouldn't 
outwardly say in regular life. And I wonder how you've been finding that. Like, does it feel like almost, I don't want to say juggling, but what's it like internally having that contrast and being aware of it? It's hard. It's hard as a human being and as a, um, a comedian and as a creative, because I do feel now way more comfortable to like how you said, say certain things and go deep with both myself. Actually, forget it, just myself, really, on stage in ways that I don't know if I'm at least currently doing in a lot of intimate relationships. I mean, I have many, many best friends who I who know my deepest, darkest bullshit, and I go deep with them all the time, and that's wonderful. But I do feel like now that that is the place where as if I feel the most empowered or the most comfortable to like willy-nilly say what it is that I want and connect with people. And then the creative side of it, or as being an artist or as being a, a comedian, is you know, I, I would like to get to a point where who it is I am to my circle of friends when I'm talking about things is who it is that I present on stage. Because I think that's all great comedians, right? Like, the, I think like Bill Burr has said it, a couple others have said it too, like the legends that are like, it's going to get to a point where getting on stage is going to be so familiar and so second nature and so muscle memory to you that who you are when you talk to people off stage is who you are when you're on stage. And I'm going to contradict myself when I say this, but then I also think that there's a healthy element that like who you are on stage should be a little bit more exaggerated than who you are. Nobody wants to marry a walking act. You know, nobody <laughs> wants to like, you know, it's hard to be intimate in that sense as well too. So it, yeah, it's constantly striking a balance. I will say, I don't remember the last time you've seen me live, but I, I will say at least from what I've noticed from my last few months of performances, and maybe it's being the end of the world in 2020, I am unfucking bridled in new ways. So I think whatever you've even already seen has probably been amplified because I am very comfortable on stage now. And I'm starting to realize like, you're going to regret it more if you don't say it. I think the last time I saw you was at Rockwood during your hard candy series. Like, I think, what was that? Like mm -hmm. last, uh, I want to say maybe November or maybe even January, like something wild like that. Yes. Oh my God. RIP Rockwood. Yeah. It was, um, at the last one we did and the only one we did in 2020 was February and then pfft, everything, you know, being indoors became illegal, very what, illegal, very quick. Was it like um, around like either right before, right after Valentine's day weekend, I think. Yep. And there was this year. It was this February. That, yep. uh, then I think yep. that might've been the last time I saw you. Holy yeah. shit. Yeah. That feels like 10 years ago. <laughs> it feels like, it feels like, it feels like, and it also feels like nothing matters. <laughs> like nothing any of us did before matters nothing we did this year probably matters i hope it does god i hope it does but all like, our hopes and our ideas like it's just ridiculous there's such a deep sadness when i look back at january february in that first week or so of march of like whoa you had no fucking idea i even think back to like this time last year in 2019 and i'm like oh my god if i would have known i would have been in a hazmat suit already. like <laughs> i would have anyways yeah. yeah yeah that was the last time yeah and I mean I was I was pretty comfortable then and I was in a stride and getting up a lot and stuff but um I think a little bit of it if I were to think 2020 and it's apocalyptic energy for anything is that I don't give a fuck anymore and I am finally really going there and I think hopefully comfortable enough as a comedian to be like hey this is what I want to talk about on stage and if it's dark and it makes you uncomfortable then I guess you're just not my audience but I will find that yeah and I'm on my way to doing that it might be a bit of a bold thing of me to say, so definitely feel free to step in at any point. But I almost feel like that's doubly important, especially as a woman, like being able to be a woman and realize that you're at a place where you could say whatever you want. It, it sucks so much. And I really don't 
I mean, we could do a whole podcast alone talking about this thing I'm about to say, but if you just examine the way we're raised as kids and how you enter the workplace and like, you know, school and all that, it's like, there's so many areas in life that tell women not to speak. It's really strange. Absolutely. Absolutely. And thank you for noticing that because there's a shocking amount of men in the society that still think that our experience is identical to theirs socially and interpersonally and creatively. And it's just not professionally. And yeah, I mean, as little girls, even from, I mean, I was, I can't tell you how many times I got written up in school for talking too much. And I mean, I think that those were the fundamental moments of probably me finding my voice as a comedian or as a woman. And I, I wasn't getting, you know, I was getting written up way more than my male colleagues were and stuff. And there, there is this internalized, there's some men that get it like yourself and you're a gentleman and a scholar, but unfortunately <laughs> in our society, there's a lot of people that don't still. And I think it's so deeply internalized that I even think that there are some men that think they get it and think they're hip to it and think they're woke, if you will. And they're not. I was on a show in Miami on Monday where an old man, old fucking geezer, old comic <laughs> in the scene, fucking piece of shit. The kind of piece of shit that was like referring to women at the bar to his buddies as like how he would rate them on a scale of one to ten. Out loud? Like, just, just see the nine at the bar oh, with Jesus. the tits, like whatever. I was like, well, yeah, okay, she's a nine, you're a zero. Like, <laughs> Are you kidding me? Can like, I can, can I take a wild guess? Because I love doing stuff like this. Can I take a wild guess for me and the people listening to you talking right now that he looks exactly like we're envisioning it, how he looks? Yeah. <laughs> he's so white, he's permanently sunburned all the time. He's balding, and his, his lips are somehow always capped. And, like, he was probably ripped in the 80s, but now it's just beer gut dad. This Ugh. is bod. And like, it's just bad. And he like, definitely voted for Trump. Like, we didn't get into it, but it's just like, I, I just see his like political party written all over his essence. And it just <laughs> me off so much because he, he came up and just gave me unsolicited. But first off, he didn't assume I was on the comedy show. This is what I'm saying. Number one, he goes, oh, are you, are you here for the show? And I said, I'm on the show. I'm hosting it. Oh, strike one, right? You don't do that with your male counterpart. Strike two comes with unsolicited advice. Here's how you manage a room like this. Blah, 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 blah. You gotta do this. You gotta do that. You got Nobody fucking asked you. I don't even know who the fuck you are. <laughs> what would make you think that I trust your advice or would take it? Number three, he goes, I was writing out my jokes. He goes, are you bringing your little notebook up on stage with you? Yeah. No, he didn't. Yes, he did. And I can't tell you how many times I've had this happen. And now I've learned how to channel it and like, I brought the motherfucking house down that night because now I had, and it's not always like that. Sometimes you're in your head and you bomb and you eat a dick because somebody like that got in your head right before you got on stage. But I can't let that happen anymore. Now I've learned how to channel that and be like, yeah, I am bringing my little notebook up on stage with me. Wow. And it's full of little jokes that are fucking funny and that are going to set this motherfucking room on fire. And that's what it did. And, <laughs> but Fuck see, yeah, man. <laughs> Thank you, dude. But it's like, you know, like, that sucks, though. And it's a constant. And as a woman and as a human being, and some days you're better equipped to deal with that. And other days you're like, fuck. Like, you know, it's a lot harder sometimes to boss fit your way out of that. Like, everyone's always like, 
don't take that. You're a boss bitch. And some days you feel that way, some days you don't. Yeah, well, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that. I mean, because I appreciate what you said earlier about me being like so smart and a scholar and all that, but I'd be remiss you if I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that me feeling as though I have a bit of an understanding of what women go through comes from an army of women in my life from like uh, friends and exes and even my current partner where I feel like almost even now, every like week, I almost feel like I learned something new, which I feel like if there's a positive with me is that you have to be receptive to that. But I think what's interesting as a guy is almost this realization of like, I think there was definitely a period of time where I was like dismissive of uh, what women's feelings could be in regards to how I would, you know, take them in and how I would be approached of them. And I think it took being able to realize like, wait, that doesn't make sense. Like, why would I dismiss what someone's saying? And it's weird how so many guys don't arrive to that. It is. And I, it is. And I think you touched on something really important, which is, and I think this goes by the way for gender, for race, for all the identities, classifications, all, all of it. It's, I, I think the first step for everybody is to just be open and willing to understand that you and the person next to you don't have identical experiences. That's just like number one. Just, just knowing, being open to hearing that two people don't move through life the same way. And then being, you, you said it exactly. You had all these women in your life. And I would bet it's, it's probably the same amount of women that a lot of men have in their life and around them. But the difference between you and them is you were willing to hear about it. You were receptive. You were willing to hear maybe where you were wrong, quote unquote, at times. Yeah. Didn't understand at times. And again, that goes for race, culture, religion, politics, gender, all of this stuff. And I think that sometimes feminism gets gassed up as this like women hating men and women wanting men to be perfect. And that is not it. I think all we're asking for in that halfway point is understand that we aren't paid the same. We aren't looked at the same by everybody and that gender is an issue and just be willing. That's it. Just be willing to see that and receptive to what it might be like. I think men have the opportunity to pay attention. I think a lot of them don't. And I think that's where you have to suss out the good, the good and the bad. And, yeah. and, you know, who's willingly turning a blind eye and who gets it and is just doing their best to try and with anything. No, I yeah. think I think you're absolutely right with that. And I just want to point out how um, when uh, you were talking about that uh, shitty comedian, that guy, you like prior to hitting the recorder, we we're talking a bit about Sopranos and boy, did it show just now. You had full Sopranos mode. <laughs> <laughs> just recounting this dude. Listen, man, I love my Italian culture, but it breeds some human mozzarella sticks. <laughs> Um, you know, yeah. they're not all the good eggs. My papa is, but not all of them are. So, yeah. <laughs> One of the fixtures of your comedy is you being open about being a survivor of assault. And I'm curious to know when and how you realized that comedy could be a vehicle to work through that experience. Because you talked about it earlier, about like how had this under realization that you were doing that. But I wonder, like, when you when you realized that, how did you did you feel like it was helpful? Like, did you feel like it helped you make more sense of things that you've been through? I absolutely did. Yeah. I think it was right under, right under my nose. I, I, what I love so much about standup is how much it demands honesty and candid communication and self-awareness. Those three things, candid communication, honesty, self-awareness, raw, raw communication. 
And I love that so much because I think in the process of being a comedian, it's, it's put the pressure on me to understand myself more. And then in getting good and winning over a room or even or actually fuck winning over a room, connecting with people long-term and having people come to you for your material, you connect through, through going for the jugular, through getting really, really honest and really authentic. And w- being a survivor of abuse and assault and going through that, there's just kind of no way to sugarcoat it. There was no way to sugarcoat it in day-to-day conversation when I was trying to kind of explain to people what was going on. You can't half admit that, right? You can't be like, well, we kind of fight bad. Or I don't, you know, people are going to be, what does that mean? What do you mean you fight bad? What do you mean what he's, there's, he's abusive? Like what physical, mental? So I think um, I very quickly realized in the process of getting honest about what it was that I was going through, I, I that's how I arrived at stand-up comedy. Because like I said, you can't auto-tune something like that. You can't sugarcoat something like that. So I, I think as I was getting really honest about what my circumstances were, what my life was, I, I, it would be really hard to translate those experiences that I wanted to talk about into improv and still produce humor out of it. Stand-up was the only medium that was like, come one, come all. Your dark shit is favored here. And th- this is the medium where you can, where you can talk. Because it's autobiographical too. You know, it's, I, I, you know, to some extent I have agency to talk about because I lived through it. I mean, the way you describe that, it just makes me think about how one of the wildest things I find about just creativity in general is like how it's always out of our control what ends up inspiring our craft when you think about it. Like we mm-hmm. can control what we do with inspiration, but we can't control where inspiration comes from. And it sounds obvious when you say it out loud, but to live it, it's, it's a really wild thing. It is a wild thing. And it's beautiful it's become a coping mechanism for pain and rejection and other things in my life. And when it strikes, it's really awesome. And it's, and I encourage anybody, whether you're doing this for a living or not to drop what it is you're doing and like follow that instinct because I write, like I write every day and I I do it to get better at the practice of it. And because like how, you know, the serendipity of all of it, you never know when something's going to come up or you need to make sense of something, but like how you said nothing really compares to the strike of inspiration or pain or an emotional response to something generating creativity so it's really cool and I think it's part of becoming an artist in any what you do and what I do both of us is being able to spot when that's happening and honor it let it do its thing yeah and trust it like it might might yield something good it might yield something bad it doesn't matter let it let it happen you're exactly right Tell me about the shows you've been doing at the Tiny Cupboard, like here in New York. For listeners unfamiliar, the Tiny Cupboard are a series of small rooftop gigs that have happened throughout the pandemic right here in Brooklyn. And you kind of become like the vizier of that whole thing. Like, how's that been? I cannot say enough good things about the Tiny Cupboard. And, and Matt and Amy, uh, Matt Rosenblum, Amy Wong, who are the co-owners and founders of that spot, they are wonderful. And we have been, I, I, I actually did not, I, we were not aware of each other pre-pandemic. And then they were doing stuff virtually. And I reached out to them and I said, I would like to do things virtually and not go stir crazy in this pandemic and still make people laugh. And we <laughs> built up a wonderful relationship. And then once it was somewhat safe kind of to go back outside, I said, if you ever want to do anything. And Matt said, we have a roof. And since July, second week of July, we just started. And I mean, the way that they have grown is incredible. I mean, those first couple shows that we did were so like beautiful and ad hoc and DIY and like 
it was so great to even just get to perform in front of people. Like, it brings tears to my eyes, honestly. Like it was, it was so great. And all the comedians got to see each other again and feel some sense of normalcy. And Matt and Amy are wonderful. They just put the comedians first and their hearts are in the right place with their business. I can't say enough good things about them. And you know what? They have dismantled the toxic club structure in New York City. And they are now a full-blown comedy club with an outdoor and indoor setting. And they have the respect and adoration of every New York City comedian from newbies and vets alike. So they are my mother and father. I love them very much so. I would just like to add to like kind of piggyback off what you mentioned at the end there. I'm a little familiar with how toxic like the club culture here in New York could be. But for people who might not know it, it's weird. I, I, I think of the way I would describe it is imagine like a corporate office and then imagine if HR didn't exist. Now, HR doesn't do shit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like... Yeah, I, I can't think of an industry that needs HR more than <laughs> comedy. And there is no one, no <laughs> one at all. And the whistleblowers have their hands dirty. To, sorry. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> go we, for it. Go for it. Referee. We need a referee. <laughs> we need something. Yeah, no, you go, continue. I, I, I'm interested oh. <laughs> in an outsider. Yeah. Well, well, I was yeah. just going to say what's comedic about it is that HR and HR and corporate world doesn't do shit anyway. So it's even doubly funny. <laughs> what do you think about right, it? Right, right, right. True, right. Like, it's useless either way. Right. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, it's, um... Yeah. <laughs> Listen, I, I, I'm trying to figure out how to say this because I have had clubs be good to me and I was passed at a couple of the New York club stuff. Um, but I think that a, a lot of the structures in stand-up comedy and comedy were established many, many decades ago, back when comedy wasn't quite as accessible and the internet wasn't a thing and social media wasn't a thing. And also back when not every fucking person in New York City was a comedian like they are now. Like literally everyone you bump into is like, I do stand-up and you're like, fuck you. Like, you know, like <laughs> everybody does it. And now I think, you know, I, I felt as a comedian, the clubs that honored me, the, the, the comic strip, Broadway, comedy club, Frontage Bulls, comedy club, Caroline's. Caroline's always looked out for me. All of those clubs, New York Comedy Club as well. I appreciate them and love them so, so much. But climbing the club structure felt a little outdated sometimes. It, it was stressful. It didn't feel fair. It felt toxic. You're not paid. It's competitive. It's, you know, all these different things. And at the end of the day, it's one person deciding whether or not you're funny enough to get on their stage, right? So I think I quickly tried to reorient myself as a comedian to just be like, go where people are. If the people and if the good set is going to be at New York Comedy Club for 10 minutes, then great. But also you can do an alt show in Brooklyn for 50 people and they could love you and eat you up. So you just have to go, just get stage time, period. And if I'm grateful for anything in this pandemic, it's that with everything shutting down and all of us being forced to reset, I think the clubs lost their power. And I think that's okay. Because yeah. I, I don't think it was fair and balanced before. And now the playing field's real level, right? And then Matt and Amy got to come in with the cupboard with open arms and just be like, if you're funny and if you're a good person and the comedians are first, and if you're a producer of a comedy show here, we don't tell you who to book or what to do. It's your show. It's your 90 minutes. And like, they got to kind of like recalibrate. I agree with you. And also, I think what's cool, I mean, even a little bit before the pandemic, I feel like that shift was happening as well. And I... I mean, I'm going to blow some smoke up your ass. I feel like you're a bit of purveyor of that because you hosted so many shows throughout the last couple of years. And I feel like the spirit that I saw you do that in was that if nobody was going to put you on or like, you know, rise you up, you were going to do it yourself. And it's not easy doing that. But the fact that you were doing it anyway, that's a big deal. Thank you. 
I have my supporters in comedy. I've, like I said, I've had clubs that have supported me. I have clubs that have not supported me. I know who sees what I'm doing and likes it. I know who sees what I'm doing and doesn't get it. I don't think any of those things are ever going to go away. Like, I, I don't, I think I'll continue to find people who think I'm great and want to book me. I think I'll continue to find people who are like, I don't get it. You know, yeah. like, I think both of those things are true. And I think early on, I, I just, I try so hard and it's really, really hard to just stay focused on the audience and on what I got into comedy for. Nothing else really matters. One club booker's opinion doesn't matter. Other comedians' opinions really don't matter. What matters is the paid ticket buyers or the people that sought out comedy and laughter leave feeling good because of you. That's really it. They're the ones who need to like you. Like they're the ones. So I think I just early on was like, I just want stage time. So if I can run these rooms and create opportunities and currency for myself to exchange with other comics or whatever, then I'm already removing some power from the club because I'm like, I'm Gucci. I, yeah. I have my show at Rockwood. I get up for 30 minutes a month. At the very least, I have that. You know, a great example of what you just described that I felt that I saw like in real time was when I went to the live show that you did of uh, Violently Funny, uh, the podcast oh, yeah. that you co-hosted with Onika McLean. And uh, yeah, I mean, that the energy in that room. What's the name of that room again? I forget. It was in the lower Caveat. 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 Yeah, the Caveat. And that was a great fucking night, man. That was an awesome show. That was great. Thank you. That was really cool. Yeah, mm-hmm. I um, we have we've since put a pin in that podcast, but I love Onika dearly, and I love the episodes that we produced. And um, I was really proud of that show. Yeah, it was like a whole variety show, and for a good cause. And you know, we got people who listened to a really fucking uncomfortable topic that night and still laugh and have a good time. So thank yeah. you. And it was clear to me that there were people because I've been to so many events and shows of friends where. I see other friends in the room and it's like a thing you could tell other friends and family members, but it was so clear that night. And I've seen it at the Rockwood shows where it's people who have no connection to you apart from your comedy. And like, you've made that happen. Like regardless of what happens going forward, you've made someone connect with your comedy, not know you in your personal life and then decide to come see you live. Like that's just like, that's insane. It is insane. It feels very weird and uncomfortable to say fans. I guess, yeah. like technically, I don't know, you know what I mean, supporters, supporters, right? it's probably a less douchey way of saying it. <laughs> it's still insane to be able to say that. And I feel very grateful whether people found me online, in person, or whatever the case is, that they just seek out and have an interest in seeing what I do on stage. I, oh, they're, they're all that matters. I know like rock stars say that, like, you're all that matters. But like now that you're, like, <laughs> you're creating, you're like, oh, they really are like all that matters. Like, they're the only people that need to be like, happy and taken care of i have two more questions for you they're a little big but i think we could tackle them together i think we can do do this this one is one that like i I think this is probably the first question i thought about asking you when i realized we're going to be talking again and essentially what do you feel people tend to misunderstand about comedians it's two things i'll zero in on people don't give comedians um slack to have an off night and it's i don't think they know we don't have like an instrument to hide behind or music or like another thing. And so um, we move through life like everybody else does. And we just uh, are a little fucked up and we make sense of it this way. And I think people don't give us the grace to have an off night. And I think they're very quick to see a comedian and be like, and I don't, I don't know if everyone understands 
what it takes to get on stage. Like it's second nature to us because we do it and we love it. And it's what we've chosen to make our life off of. But sometimes I do pull myself out of my own career and what it is that I do all the time. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's a lot. Like sometimes I get drained and like, especially if I'm having a bad day, like there's a lot of nights and I'm like, I don't feel funny. I'm not in the mood. Like, I know I'm going to love this and it's always worth it. And it's always the most important thing to me. But like, I have days when I'm like, oh, I don't feel like it'd be fine. So I don't think people give comedians credit. And that's the same reason why we get canceled all the time. Like, Jesus Christ, like, just let us like, so we said something out of turn accidentally. So we misfired. Like people, you know, that we need to give comedians a little bit more grace. I think number two is too, like when we joke about something, I think people think joking about something means we're undercutting it or like devaluing it. But I think as a comedian, if anything, like it's A, all kind of fair game to us. And B, if we're choosing to make material about it, it's because it matters. Yeah. It like, you know, so I think people are like, don't joke about that. You know, my mom the other day was like, you shouldn't be making jokes about coronavirus. And I'm like, mom, the premise, I'm not. <laughs> How is that possible? <laughs> How was that possible? I'm a comedian and I'm like, I'm a mirror to society. Like, I'm like, what am I going to, like, how do you, know, how do you not? Be, I'd actually be a more ignorant piece of shit if I wasn't making material about 2020 and COVID. And people would be like, hello, like, have you been around all year? And I'm like, mom, the tone of the jokes is not like making fun of the death toll. It's, it's like, it's making material about this relentless virus and pandemic, you know? So, um, that's another thing too, I think, that people are like, you shouldn't joke about that. It's like, that's our job to craft material. And joke, we take jokes pretty fucking serious. What, what you said there reminds me of uh, something my favorite comedian uh, said years ago, Patrice O'Neill. And he was talking mm-hmm. about inappropriate jokes, how they could offend people. And he, would, he said that he wishes the public would understand that funny jokes and unfunny jokes come from the same place. And the only way a joke goes from unfunny to funny is if you will let it evolve and let it exist in the world. Like, it's the only way it gets Correct. to grow. That's the perfect summation, I think, of the two things I was just trying to get across. You did a great job yeah. with that, too. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, you gotta, give, you gotta give comedians a chance. Try and see the undertone of what it is they're trying to say. And maybe it's not perfect the first time around, but yeah. The last thing I wanted to ask you is, uh, I mean, you're obviously writing all the time, but do you feel like you've been working on an hour? I have. Yeah, oh. I think this is my first. Yeah, this is my first hour, I think, that's coming together now. I just filmed. So I headlined for the first time in Miami at Villain Theater, which was amazing. I did two shows. I was very fortunate. They both sold out. They were great. Had new friends, new faces, but old friends, everybody in the room. Um, and the theater was kind enough. They really want to develop uh, new local comedians that they believe in. So they offered to tape it. Oh, tape amazing. it and edit it. Yeah. So I actually will be releasing something in the spring, my technical first special or comedy product, like for commercial release and purchase. It's going to be half sketch and half stand up. Um, and it's cool. I think it's going to be about 15 to 20 minutes of my stand up. And then it's the rest is going to be sketch. Oh. Um, but for the most part, that initial first like hour is still definitely coming together. So just trying oh. to figure out now what we're releasing and burning through and then what we're going to hold back. It was cool. It's cool. I wasn't expecting to like film anything or release a special of any kind, um, but they're really supportive. And I was like, yeah, let's do something to make sense of 2020. So it's a lot of 2020 material. It's a lot of hometown Miami material, <laughs> which felt appropriate to do in the 305. And it came out, it came out really well. So I'm excited to put a little taste of what it is I'm working on out there. 
that that is awesome man i really can't wait to check that out especially like it's good to know there's something to look forward to in that regard and i mean i was going to ask you if you feel like the material you've been working on has been informed by the pandemic but it's more of a thing like how could it not be really right yeah yeah and this kind of felt like uh when they were like would you want to tape it and we can help you and cut it up and release it and stuff i was like yeah i i mean i spent this entire year making material that some of which some of it's going to carry over some of it I think is evergreen, but I think a lot of it is very topical and kind of a time capsule for 2020. I was like, yeah, maybe we don't like, you know, waste it. Let's, let's yeah. tape it and put it out there. And also, how do you, how would I release, how would I shoot something in a pandemic and release it next spring and not have jokes in it about 2020 when the crowd's like in mass? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's an elephant in the room, you know? So um, it's definitely going to color that too. But it was cool. And I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to be precocious or ahead of my own progress in comedy with it. Like, by no means am I like, it's dropping on Comedy Central. Like, it's, you know, it's, I'm going to pitch it around and see what I can do with it. But that, you know, you have to gravitate towards your allies because they have a theater believe in me and be willing to do this. You know, and I'm like, yeah, let's take some of my material and it, let's introduce myself to people who maybe haven't seen me live yet and are in England or Italy or wherever and try and put something out there. Well, thank you so much, Brittany motherfucking brave. Thank you for chatting. That is actually my legal middle name. He's actually, that's not, it's, that's my legal middle name. Oh, fuck, the secret's out. Fucking secret. Uh, secret's out. out. <laughs> <laughs> Dropping all the tea on this podcast. Thank you so much for checking this out. Be sure to subscribe to The New Exchange via Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you stream podcasts. Until next time, thank you for listening.